So today we are going to talk about callings. Everybody say callings. 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 All right. A calling is not a hobby. A calling is not an interest that you simply pick up. But a calling is something you were made to do and someone you are called to be. That's going to be the first fill-in on your outline. A calling is something you were made to do and someone you were called to be. And the great news is that we all have callings in our lives. And clarity in this area of calling is what keeps us from wasting our lives and pursuing meaningless things. In Ephesians 2.10 it says, For we are his workmanship. If you came with somebody, look at him today and say, You are his workmanship. You are his workmanship. That's good. Everybody should feel good after that. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So God's word tells us that we are not simply wasting time, passing time. Life is not happening to us. But before we were ever even born, God had good things prepared for us to do. Planned ahead of time. Purpose, tasks, and seasons in our lives designed to do one thing, and that's bring Him glory. We're going to be studying our way through the book of Ephesians, and, we're done, and when we're done with it, I believe you're going to be in a completely different place in your relationship with God. The book of Ephesians is considered by many the pinnacle of the New Testament, and it is a glorious assault on your heart of the goodness of God. And so we're going to dig into it today, and it is good, good stuff. But before we dive in, we need to study the man who wrote Ephesians, which is the Apostle Paul. He wrote most of the New Testament outside of the four Gospels, and Paul is the human model of what it means to be a pastor, an evangelist, and a church planter. He was the most effective at all of those things that the world has ever seen. Many of you know that Paul was raised as Saul. He was Jewish and was always the best and brightest in his class, and he rose through the political and religious ranks of the society to become a Pharisee, the ruling religious class of the day. And he was so zealous for Judaism that when Jesus Christ came and Christianity began to spread on the earth, he considered it an affront and a threat to his Jewish beliefs, and he zealously persecuted the early church. Not out of obligation, but out of zeal. He enjoyed doing it. That's how zealous he was. In fact, when Stephen, one of the original 12 disciples, was stoned to death, Saul was there holding the coats of the men who were stoning him to death and watching on with nodding approval. Saul was zealous and he was an enemy of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 8, it describes Paul's zeal for the persecution of the early church. It says, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. And then something radical happens in Saul's life. He has what we know simply as the Damascus Road experience. Saul is on one track, one path in his life, and Jesus comes down and intersects his life. And suddenly everything is different. Saul doesn't get a pamphlet about Jesus. He gets Jesus. 
He's on the road to Damascus, and Jesus shows up with just a little bit of his glory because any more than that would have killed him on the spot. Strikes him blind. Saul falls on the ground. And here's the words coming from heaven. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? How many of you know you probably don't have an answer when God shows up, strikes you blind, and asks you why you're persecuting him? I'm pretty sure the only thing running through Saul's mind was, sorry? Really? Really sorry? So in this one moment, God intersects Saul's life, and all the questions, all the doubts he has about Jesus being the Messiah are answered in a singular momentary encounter with God. And that's true for all of us. You can be anywhere you are in life. You can have any thoughts, any case you want against the reality of Jesus. But when you're confronted with the reality of Jesus, everything changes in a moment. And that's what happens. He's struck blind. To make a long story short, Saul changes his name and he becomes Paul. And he goes away for several years after that encounter with Jesus to work on his belief system, to work on his theology. Because his whole life, he's been raised and trained to believe one set of things. And now Christianity is saying something else. So he goes away for several years by himself and he studies. And he realizes that Jesus is not a threat to Judaism, but is in fact the fulfillment of all the prophecies that they've been hanging on to for thousands of years. Paul comes out of that time of studious isolation a beast theologically. The man is just an intellectual monster, and his model of evangelism is to go into cities and to reason with people. He doesn't stand on a street corner and yell at him. He says, let's talk about this, and he's prepared to talk with the best theologians of the day, the brightest intellectuals, the physicists, the theorists, the philosophers. Paul engages all of them. He's an absolute theological beast. Everybody say beast. That's a fun word to say. I enjoy that. So if you want to read the story of Paul's conversion, it's on your outline. It's in Acts chapter 9, 1 through 19. And Paul ultimately dies in Rome as a martyr for the same Jesus that he had been earlier persecuting. A complete 180 happens in his life. Ephesians is based around the city of Ephesus, which is one of the largest and most important cities in the Roman Empire. There's about half a million people there at this time in history. And see if this starts sounding familiar. The city benefited from a great road system. Sort of all the roads started there and went out into the region. It had a great river system. And it was a port location. So it was a center of trade, a center of commerce. And there were always new ideas coming into the town from far off places. And people would talk. And philosophies would spread. Beliefs would spread. Ideas would spread. And so they were a very, very pluralistic society. Which means they believed there were many gods. And they were all valid and kind of all led to God in the same way. They believed that this was an enlightened intellectual position and they considered themselves to be very, very intelligent people. If you haven't figured it out, there's striking similarities between Ephesus and Vancouver, which is very much the culture here. There's a sense of enlightenment and in a sense that all roads lead to God, but everybody gets very uncomfortable when you begin to say, no, there's one God. Much like it was in Ephesus, it is here as well today. And that's considered a very narrow-minded position. And so there were at least 50 different gods that were worshipped in the city of Ephesus that we know about. 50. But the most prominent was the goddess Artemis. In Rome, her equivalent would have been Diana. And she was considered kind of the mother of the city. And her claim to fame was her specific style of required worship which is if you wanted to worship Diana, 
you wouldn't uh, go and get a liturgy book or light a candle or anything like that. You'd go down to the temple in your reverent state of mind, and you would hire a temple prostitute for the afternoon, and that would be your act of worship. And historians tell us that there may be a link between temple prostitution and the wild popularity of Artemis. It's just an emerging theory, but they think they may be connected somehow. So, I mean, I guess if you're going to start a religion, you know. So this was the deal. And so this is a wildly, wildly, wildly popular religion in the city of Ephesus, the dominant religion. And they would make little statues and guys would go and do their thing in the afternoon. And they became incredibly, incredibly wealthy. Uh, because if you have temple prostitution, you don't really need to collect an offering, you know. You don't really need to rally people for that. The money keeps flowing. So the religion around Diana grows in power and popularity in the city of Ephesus to the point where they start buying up large pieces of land and property, and they become the dominant powerhouse in the city of Ephesus. Everything is controlled by the temple of Diana and the people who run it. And this is the city that Paul comes into. They're a city obsessed with magic because they recognize that there's a spiritual dimension and they recognize that there's a force called evil. And for a lot of people, that's actually the gateway into spirituality, is that it's sometimes easier to recognize the fact that evil does exist. And if evil does exist, what is it? And when people understand that part of spirituality, they start getting scared and they start getting superstitious. And so the way that they dealt with that in the city of Ephesus was through magic. They had witches, wizards, incantations, spell books. You could hire somebody to do anything you want. The city was obsessed with magic. And Paul comes into this city and ends up in Ephesus where he lived for about three years from 52 to 56 AD. And he spends time there because it's a center. And if he can start a church and get influence in the city of Ephesus, his ideas and the message of Christ will spread all over the entire region. So he sets up shop in Ephesus. And his time there is absolutely electric because Paul doesn't really come into the city and uh, just start quietly doing his business. He does it for a few months, and then things blow up. And Paul's time in Ephesus is documented in Acts 19. So let's turn there in our Bibles. Acts 19, we're going to read about Paul's time in Ephesus. It has some of the best stories in the whole Bible. Starting in verse 1, Acts chapter 19, it says, And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We've not so much heard as whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? And so they said, Into John's baptism. So this is a wild scene. Paul comes into the city, crosses paths with these guys who are disciples. And these guys were followers of John the Baptist. John the Baptist uh, was the precursor to Jesus. He had one job in his whole ministry, and that was to point to Jesus. That was the message of John. Jesus is coming. Get ready. Repent of your sins. Get ready for the Savior. He's about to be here. And so when John would baptize people, he wouldn't be baptizing them to make them Christians. He would be baptizing them as a sign that they were turning away from their old life in order to get ready for Jesus who was about to come. So these guys heard John's teaching. There's a Savior coming. They got baptized. And that's the last thing they heard. I don't want to diss John's ministry, but apparently follow-up was not a big part of his ministry. Because if you look at the timeline, it's 20 years since Jesus died, 
rose from the grave and ascended back to heaven. 20 years! And they haven't heard anything about it. Nothing about it. And I'm blown away by the faithfulness of these men because we missed church for a month and we're like, why didn't anybody call? It's been 20 years. Nobody's even told them that Jesus Christ has like come, died, rose. Yeah, it's done. It's over. You know, you can become a, a Christian now. That's the last they heard. I mean, I don't know what they did every week when they got together. It just sure is going to be great. Sure is going to be great when it happens. And Paul's like, seriously? I've got like the best sermon you've ever heard for you. You need to sit down and hear this. And this is what he finds. So verse 4 Paul says, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. Make a note of this. You can underline in your Bibles if you want. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And I just want to point out, when they hear about Jesus, they get baptized immediately. They don't say, oh, some point in the future I'll do this. Their immediate response is, well, I've been baptized into John's baptism, but Jesus is here. I want to confess that I love Jesus. I want him to be my Savior. And they do it right away. It's a good start to Paul's kind of ministry. So let's move on to verse 6. It says, and when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about 12 in all, so they're saved and they receive that separate baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is an empowering for ministry that's a separate event from salvation. In verse 8 it says, And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. So Paul still had a huge heart for his own people, the Jews. Whenever he would go into a town, he would start with them, begging and pleading with them to receive Jesus and understand that he came to be everything they were waiting for. But it never really worked out. And in verse 9 it says, But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way, the way was just an early name for Christianity, before the multitude, he, Paul, departed from them and withdrew the disciples. He took his disciples with him and reasoned daily in the school of Tyrannus. School of Tyrannus is just probably a private school in the city of Ephesus, and Paul kind of rented some space there about five hours a day during the off hours of school, and he would hold a Bible study, and anyone who wanted to could just come talk, and he'd be there every day. What gives you an idea about who Paul is is he has so much going on in his mind, such an understanding of God, he's got pretty much the entire Old Testament memorized, and he just sits down and talks. And they're talking, oh, yes, you're speaking of Exodus 7.14, which of course says. And this is how they talk. And Paul does this for five hours a day. And he just starts teaching the scriptures to people and explaining who Jesus is using the scriptures. In verse 10 it says, And this continued for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia, all who dwelt in Asia, heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So in just two years, Paul's influence does exactly what he hoped it would. It spreads throughout the whole region around Ephesus. And everybody begins hearing about this Savior called Jesus Christ. Verse 11 says, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick. And the diseases left them and evil spirits went out. So people used to swoon about getting a napkin that Elvis would like wipe his forehead with, right? You get a napkin that Paul wiped his forehead with. 
If you're demon-possessed, the demon leaves. If you're sick, you get healed. I'd love a Paul napkin. It's a pretty neat thing. And this is a crazy thing. Like, this really, really happens. And so you wonder, well, what's going on? And I think a couple of things are going on. One is this is a city obsessed with magic. And sometimes God just likes to make a point. And so God is saying, oh, you guys like magic. This is a little something I call the handkerchief trick. And people are just getting healed like that, just from touching Paul. And so let's take a minute and talk about the difference between descriptive text and prescriptive text. Because prescriptive text tells you what to do and is an eternal command from Scripture. Prescriptive text tells you what to do. When Paul says, husbands, love your wives, that's a prescriptive text. You shouldn't be arguing against that, saying that was a different time. Jesus doesn't expect us to love our wives anymore. It's 2012. It's a prescriptive text. It always, always applies. Then you have a descriptive text, which is telling you what happened at a specific place in time. And that's what's going on here with this handkerchief thing. It doesn't mean that we should all go out and start a handkerchief ministry. Especially when I'm selling them in the lobby for $19.99 after the service. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. And you can get them right there. So there's a difference between descriptive text and prescriptive text. So Paul is doing this. His ministry is growing. People are starting to take notice. And then we run into one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture. I would have paid money to be here for this. Verse 13, it says, But also some of the Jewish exorcists. These are like exorcists for hire. Like that's what the sign says outside their storefront. The exorcist is in, who went from place to place, attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. So they would go out and they would say, oh, there seems to be something to this Jesus name thing. So there's, there's power in the name of Jesus, right? And they just get the application a little wrong. So they're going to people and saying, in the name of Jesus of whom Paul speaks, demon, I command you to come out. And this is, this is their strategy. You just say the name. They think it's just a trick. It's a magic thing. It's an incantation. And then we read on in verse 14 that seven sons of one Siva, who was a Jewish chief priest, so this guy has seven sons. We're all doing this. You know, apparently it's Siva and sons, exorcist for hire. They were doing this. So they go into this guy. They walk in. There's a demon-possessed guy. I don't know what he's doing. I don't know if he's on the ceiling or just sitting there with his head spinning or what. So they say... <clears throat> Devil, in the name of Jesus, of whom Paul speaks, I command you to come out. I want to wager you've never experienced terror like this. And the evil spirit answered them and said, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? In my head, I kind of imagine, I like to envision things happening uh, like cinematography, like a movie. I just imagine that being the moment where it goes to the face of the guy who says it, and he just goes, oh, and then just cuts the scene right there. And you find out the next, the next scene that you get in the movie, it says, the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. So he just says, I... I know Jesus, I know Paul, but who are you? The next thing you see is a bunch of naked guys bleeding, running out of the house, screaming. And so the lesson we learn from this is that Jesus is not a trick. You can't put up a footprints poem on your fridge and be like, the house is blessed. Look at this. I got a fish over my doorway, you know? 
can't put a fish on your car and be like, I don't understand why I got a ticket. My car's blessed. I've got like a Jesus bumper sticker on the back. And that's what these guys are doing. They're not understanding the real power of Jesus, and they're thinking he's just a handy little convenience. He's just a nice little addition to their life, and Jesus isn't really putting up with that. In verse 17, it says, This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. To give you an idea, in today's currency, that's about $40 million worth of magic books. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. In this passage of text, verse 17 through 20, I want us to notice some really important things. Because this passage tells us what it looks like when God really shows up in a place. And here's what we find. We find that people aren't talking about Paul. People aren't talking about his amazing ministry. People aren't talking about the neat gatherings that people are having. It says the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified in verse 17. And the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing in verse 20. So when God is really moving, when God is really in a place and he's really doing something, those two things happen. People talk about Jesus. People are obsessed with Jesus. And people fall in love with the word of God. People have a reverence for the word of God. When people aren't talking about Jesus and they're just talking about great music or a great location or a great vibe or a really helpful ministry, that's not what it looks like when God is really showing up. Because when God's really there, Jesus is the center of attention and everything points to him and people fall in love with his word. We also see that people start denying their old lifestyles and turning away from them in a a dramatic fashion and not because Paul stands up and says, I also want to let everybody know at 3 p.m. today we're having our next fellowship event. We're having a book burning, which is going to be great fun. Bring your friends and it's going to be super. Paul doesn't tell them to do that. They just do it on their own. They do it all by themselves. Paul doesn't rail against what they're doing. Paul doesn't make the focus of his teaching their wickedness. Paul makes the focus of his ministry the goodness of God. And the Bible tells us that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's not the threats of God that lead us to repentance, but it's his kindness. It's his goodness. And so when God changes your heart, your behavior naturally follows. Have you ever maybe had the experience of trying to change your behavior before your heart has actually been changed? It doesn't usually work out. You get bitter. It feels like so much work. But when your lifestyle is being driven by what God's doing in your heart, it just happens naturally. Nobody has to tell you. You just start having a hunger to be more like Jesus and be closer to him. And so when we push a change in people's behavior before their heart has changed, that's the very definition of dead religion. That's what it is. And so our heart for you, God's heart for you, is that in each of our hearts, we would draw closer and closer to Jesus. And we really believe that as we do that, the behavior will work itself out. God will do a work in you. God will do a work in me. 
But if we try to do it without the heart being changed, it's just work, and it doesn't mean anything anyway. God cares more about our hearts than he does even our actions because our actions follow our heart. So you can put on your outline that heart change drives behavior. Heart change drives behavior. And if if you're here today and there is a behavior in your life that you're just battling with, I want to encourage you to ask God to change your heart even more than your behavior. Ask him to change your heart because the heart drives your behavior. Let's jump ahead to verse 23 and we find Paul's next notable interaction in the city of Ephesus. It says, And about that time there arose a great commotion about the way, which is Christianity. For a certain man named Demetrius, the silversmith, who made silver shrines, so he makes little statues of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation. So this is basically like a teamsters meeting. They're doing like chapter 37 in Ephesus, which is all the silversmiths who make little Diana statues. And he said, Men, You know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying, can you believe it, that they are not gods which are made with hands? Say, can you believe Paul is doing this? Paul is saying that the things we make with our hands are not gods. This is scandalous. We We have to stop this. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. He doesn't give a rip about Diana. You all know that. He's just, but he's trying to appeal to their sensitivities. I think there's something else going on here. I think the subtext of what he's saying to his brothers in chapter 33 is he's saying, not only is this guy cutting into our income, but there's only one religion, which is all for temple prostitution. And he's wrecking it. Do you really want to lose all this? He's stirring them up and they're going, heck no, uh, Diana, glorious Diana, let's save Diana, she's worthy of worship. So when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out saying, great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater. There's about 30,000, 35,000 people in there with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's travel companions. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. So there's an angry mob like 30, 35,000 people. Half of them don't even know why they're there. Paul's take on this is like, dude, well, this is a great opportunity to teach the gospel. It's like 35,000 people here. This is the biggest crowd I've ever taught to. Everybody else is like, Paul, you're out of your mind. He's like, no, no, let me go. I've, I've got it. This is going to be awesome. People are going to get saved. Paul has this singular mindset, this singular mindset that defies description. And the reason is that he is absolutely certain of who he is and what he's been called to be. Paul believes, I am nothing if not an evangelist. I am nothing if not a proclaimer of Jesus Christ and his gospel. So let's do this. And people have to hold him back because they're thinking, Paul, you know what's great than preaching to 35,000 people and dying? Not dying. So they have to hold him back, but he wants to go in. Verse 32, it says, Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. It's like a typical mob. 
And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, Greatest Diana of the Ephesians! Greatest Diana of the Ephesians! So this guy's up there, he's like, let me just say, Greatest Diana of the Ephesians! Greatest Diana of the... Greatest Diana... Two hours. So apparently these guys really, really, really don't want to go to work. Most of them have no idea why they're there. They're like, cool, great, great, greatest Diana of the Ephesians. Two hours this is going on. Verse 35, it says, And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called into question for today's uproar, there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. And again, you see the, the similarity between the mindset in Ephesus and the similarity to the mindset where we live. Because the city clerk is basically calming the crowd by saying, this man is a harmless idiot who's preaching intellectually inferior things against things that are undeniable, which we all know better of. And his appeal is basically, we're Ephesians. We're better than this. So... Uh, I don't want everybody over in Corinth to be saying that there was a lawless riot because we're Ephesians. We don't do this. This is beneath us. And that's how he calms the crowd. And the crowd all says, oh, oh right, right. We're, we're Ephesians. We're Ephesians. So Ephesians is a city, Ephesus is a city full of people who are completely ignorant about the truth but are convinced that they are the enlightened ones. They're convinced. So when Paul writes to the Ephesians, he's now in prison in Rome. And for some time, he's allowed to rent a house, and he's basically in chains there under house arrest. And he has a guard chained to him for about 8 to 12 hours a day. And in my head, I just think, I wonder what they were talking about. Paul's like, sweet, a captive audience. Hey, have you ever heard about Jesus? Every day, all day, for 8 to 12 hours. What are we going to talk about today, Paul? Oh, let's talk about Jesus. Oh, okay, same thing we talk about every day, Jesus and how you need him. So this goes on. And Paul writes a letter to the Ephesians after he hasn't seen them for about five years. And he writes it in the early days of the church when there's really only one church in each city. It's like, where do you go to church? Ephesus. It's only one church. I don't like the music. Go to Corinth. It's kind of the way it was. There was one church in every place, so I'm sure there was a lot less to complain about. So let's flip over to Ephesians, if you can find it in your Bible. Galatians, Ephesians. This is good. I want to watch all the Bible college students and be like, do any of them know their Bibles? They're like, flip to the index if you have to. Ephesians 1 verse 1. We find Paul and in the days that followed the ascension of Jesus, Jesus has left the earth. There's 11 disciples left because Judas has betrayed Jesus and committed suicide. And they want to replace Judas. They say like, there's 12 of us. It's kind of our thing. We're the 12 disciples. It's way more catchy than the 11 disciples. 12 is a good number. It's a complete number. So they decided that there were a couple of qualifications for being an apostle, for being part of the 12. 
You had to be with Jesus for the whole three years of his ministry, from the time he was baptized by John the Baptist to the time he ascended back to heaven. And you had to be appointed by Jesus personally. And they decided this, this is what you had to do to be an apostle, but they had to replace him. So they replaced Judas with a 12th disciple, Matthias. And here's, here's what's interesting. is Nowhere in Scripture does it actually say that God told them to do that. They just did it. There's a lot of theologians, and I, I agree with them, who hold the perspective that Jesus himself did actually choose a replacement for Judas. And it was Paul. And the case you would make for that is the fact that Paul was met by Jesus on the road to Damascus. I mean, that's a pretty good argument, you know. It's like, well, what are your credentials? Well, I've seen Jesus. Okay, next question. So he had actually seen Jesus. Jesus appeared to him in an element of his glory. Paul wrote most of the New Testament outside the Gospels, and we never hear from Matthias again, ever, in Scripture. So the main idea is that it's very probable that Paul was who Jesus wanted to replace Judas as the 12th disciple. But Paul always had to deal with this complex of not being fully accepted. You know, when he goes and he meets the, the apostles, and when they hear about him, there's always kind of the attitude like, yeah, that's Paul. He's kind of a, he's like a demi-apostle. Demi you know, he can be an apostle, but like with a lowercase a. You know, he's not fully accepted. So Paul always has to kind of remind everybody when he writes that he has some legit credentials in order to be writing to him. He's qualified. And so he starts out in verse 1, chapter 1 of Ephesians, by saying, Paul, and then he gives his title. This, is, this looks so good on a business card. An apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. You can go ahead and underline that. By the will of God. Which is a really great way of saying, I don't want to talk about it. By the will of God. Done. This is who I am. I'm an apostle by the will of God. Not because I got voted in. I'm an apostle by the will of God. And that supersedes your opinion. Deal with it. So Paul is letting them know this. And, and what's profound again about this statement is that Paul has absolute clarity on who he is, what his identity is, what his calling is. He's called to be an apostle. He's been sent by Jesus. He knows who he is, and that's how he identifies himself. And, and without a calling, life is simply a process of starting, accumulating, and then dying. That's what life is without calling without callings. And that's why so many people ditch life halfway through. Because there seems to be no meaning. You just start accumulating. And then you die as soon as you've got the most stuff. Life is absolutely meaningless without a purpose, without a calling. And so there are things in life, in every single one of our lives, that we can look at and realize that we've been called to by the will of God. If you're a husband, you're a husband by the will of God. If you're a father, you're a father by the will of God. You might even know what your ministry calling is. You might be able to say, I'm a youth leader by the will of God. I'm a college student by the will of God. When you know that God has called you to be that. That's an incredibly powerful way to view parts of your life and be able to say, I'm, I'm not just a dad. I'm a dad by the will of God. God wants me to be this. And the power in that is that my qualification, your qualification in these areas is not because we passed some test or because we got audited and were found to be good enough. We were called to do it. We were called to do it. 
And God doesn't pull his calling away. He called us to do it. And you can put this down on your outline. When God gives you a calling, he gives you his power to be victorious in that calling. He gives you his power to be victorious in that calling. God's never going to say, hey, I've called you to be a mom, but you're going to suck at it. just want you to know. It's my sense of humor. But if he called you to do it, he's going to give you a special empowering through the Holy Spirit to do it and to be it. And so for a lot of us, we need to begin to change the way that we look at ourselves. Because one of the favorite strategies of our enemy, Satan, is to come to us and say, you've got no business being that. You've got no business doing that. And sometimes the only authority we have is to be able to say, sometimes that's true, I've got no business being that. But I am that by the will of God. And that supersedes everything. In verse 18 of Ephesians, it says this. Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age but also in the one to come. So the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the grave is the same power that God has given you to fulfill your calling. In family, in marriage, in school, in work, in ministry. That's the power. It's not a little bit of power. It's a whole lot of power. It's resurrection power. Jesus back from the dead power. And so what you see in Paul is you see a man who's so sure of what he's called to be that when everybody else would be running away, Paul is running into the thick of it. And that's just who he is. He's not a quitter. Because he knows, I was put here to do this. And I don't run away from my calling. Because it's who I am. Your calling is who you are. And that's the same power that lies in every single one of us. But it all begins with the highest calling. Which is in verse 2. Most importantly... You can put this on your outline. I am a saint by the will of God. I'm a saint by the will of God. Paul says in verse 2, he says, To the saints who are in Ephesus and the faithful in Christ Jesus. And in Greek, the word for saint is not super awesome, never does anything wrong. The word for saint just means holy. It means somebody who's been set apart for God. They belong to God. And so a saint is somebody who has achieved the greatest thing that any human being can ever achieve. And that's belonging to God. There is nothing in life, no achievement, no accomplishment that will ever be greater than belonging to God. There's nothing. And that's what a saint is. So you and I, those of us who call Jesus our God and our King, we're saints because we belong to Him. We're not saints because we meet a certain standard or somebody else's qualifications. We're saints because we belong to him. The defining characteristic of a saint, verse two says, is that they're faithful, which just means they're a person who's been so impacted by Jesus that they just can't quit. They just can't quit. It doesn't mean they're perfect. It means even when they screw up 
and blow it and mess everything up. They can't quit because they understand I'm, I'm called to be a saint. This is who I am. It's not who I am one day and then a title I lose the next day based on performance. This is who I am. I'm a saint. It's my first and it's my highest calling. And so if you're here today and you're realizing that you don't belong to God yet, I'd want you to know that is the greatest accomplishment that you could ever have in life. You'll never achieve anything more important than belonging to God. And you're called to do that. We're going to pray for you in a moment. And if that's you, you're going to have a chance to respond. But I also want to speak to two other groups of people that might be here today. You might be here today and say, I, I know I'm called, but I, I just need to be affirmed today by the Holy Spirit. I'm called to be something, but, but it does not feel like it. It doesn't feel like it's the will of God for me to be a dad, a mom, a college student, maybe even a saint, a husband or a wife. And you just say, I just need God to breathe on me. And I just need to hear the Holy Spirit say, you are that by the will of God. By the will of God. Not because you pass some standard. We want to pray for you in a moment. And lastly, if you've realized today that what you're doing with your life, you cannot look at and say, I am this by the will of God. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's what you're doing with your time. But you realize, I, I can't honestly say this is by the will of God. I don't know. I want you to know that in a moment, the Holy Spirit can change that and give your life direction. It can happen in an instant, or God might start the process today. But we've built some time into the service to worship again some more now. And the goal of that time is to have that space, to have that opportunity to hear from God, to let Him speak to you, to quieten your heart, be free from distractions and just say, God, God, speak to me. I need, I need purpose. I need to know what my calling is. A as a dad, I have five kids, and my heart for my kids is that they wouldn't waste a day of their life doing anything less than what they're called to do and being anything less than what they're called to be. That's the heart of a father. We're, I'm not like, you know, I'd love to see my kids go to college for four years and study something and then figure out that it's not really what they're called to do and then study something else and then kind of figure out what they're called to do when they have $100,000 in student debt, and then find out once they start the job that they don't really like it, and, you know, it'll work itself out. I think the heart of a father is to say, I don't want you to waste a day, because you're never going to be happier than doing what you were made to do and being who you were made to be. And part of being a saint is saying that we refuse to quit on trying to be everything that God's called us to be. We can't settle for anything less. Can't stand back. Just let life happen. But we have to pursue everything that God has for us. 